0: You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen, Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. I am so honored to have this week's guest on Intersections and to share our conversation with you. I attended a Zoom webinar months ago, and my guest, Dr. Roslyn Satchel, was one of the panelists. I was so moved and drawn to her words and her wisdom as she spoke. There are some people, when they speak, they more than get your attention. They actually shake things up within you. And that's what she did with me. Her passion and fire were contagious, and immediately I knew I needed to get her on the podcast, and she agreed to come on. Dr. Satchel is a scholar, an activist, a lawyer, a minister, a professor, a mother, and an author. She serves as the Blanche E. Seaver Professor of Communications at Pepperdine University. She's also a Berkman Klein Center Fellow at Harvard Law School. She's the author of What Movies Teach Us About Race, Exceptionalism, Erasure, and Entitlement, which can be purchased on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com right now. She's a dynamic speaker that won't only be heard, but also felt in this episode. This episode is part one of our conversation, so I invite you to buckle your seatbelt listen and enjoy the episode all views expressed by dr satchel are her own views and not those of any organization or institution she may be affiliated with dr satchel welcome to intersections i'm glad you could could join me here
1: it's Um, good to be with you pastor Alan, should I call you Pastor Phil or Pastor you, Alan? You can call
0: oh, me Phil. You can call me Phil. I've retired from pastoring.
1: <laughs> oh, no such thing. No such thing. My father told me after 46 years in full time ministry, he said you never retire. Because God can call you anytime.
0: Yeah. you know I, what I, I mean? Yeah. You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanna begin. You know, I'm always curious of people's story. And um it it helps us understand how they got to this, uh, where we call the intersections: race, theology, culture, um, and whatever they do. And so I want to give you an an opportunity to just share um, a little bit about your story. Where are you from, born and raised, schools you go to, your plans, desires, your passions, all that good stuff.
1: That's (laughs) a lot. Oh, I like to call myself a little country girl from Florida. Um, I am uh born and bred born and raised in florida um i and i say that in the present tense i am because they live in me as much as i am from there so i i think of home as something i carry with me now part of this is because my father was in itinerant ministry right my dad was um, in the AME church, which means that they can move you whenever the bishop so pleases. (laughs) Um, So what I came to learn was that home could never be attached to a place. Um, I was born in Jacksonville, Florida. I loved it there. I went to an all-Black neighborhood school where Mrs. Joan Spaulding was the principal. And the reason I mentioned her was because her impact on me was so profound Um, as a little girl, as young as five. I left that school by the time I was eight. And I'm here almost 40 years later telling you I still remember Mrs. Jones Spaulding. why? Because every morning Mrs. Spalding met us when we got to school, she was out front, she greeted us by name, she knew each and every one of us and I do believe she knew each and every one of our families. She was a black woman, very light skin complexion, but clearly black and proud, just like my daddy. And so one of the things that I came into knowing was that blackness was not a hue, it wasn't a complexion. There was a a sense of commitment to our people that greeted me every morning at Harborview Elementary School. It's now called Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School after renaming, but we sang Every day, Lift Every Voice and Sing, the Negro National Anthem written by James Weldon Johnson. And in those lyrics, every day, we built up a part of ourselves. Every day, we acknowledged that we came from greatness and the excellence was the standard. It was the expectation of Blackness, right? So we had a whole different epistemological experience in elementary school okay that was so instrumental to me my father was on the board of edward waters college he was also on the board of century national bank central nation century national bank was one of if not the first black bank in the united states there's some debate between those who were um competing at that time but having daddy on the board of the bank and having daddy on the board of the college and having daddy as the pastor of the church Mm -hmm. gave me a whole lot of privilege that I did not recognize it. I, it completely escaped me. It opened up a level of expectation of myself. Like college was not an option. It was clear. You graduate from high school, you go to college. These were just, Inbred in us. My mother was an educator, career educator, retired after 35 years, worked through as a teacher and an administrator. And while she was also supporting my dad in ministry, because Lord knows he couldn't have done it without her, she was right there every step of the way, playing the piano for all the choirs, had me and my sister up there trying to sing. We love to sing, ain't singers, but we love to sing. (laughs) You know, so we. (laughs) We And my older siblings had to actually be the full choir, right? So we had this idea inbred in us from the beginning that we had a commitment, we had an obligation to the community, that it wasn't just about us and any achievements that we made were made for the benefit of all our people. And so coming out of that type of upbringing and going then to Howard University in Washington, D.C., and being a part of that legacy of excellence. And that was a part of, I mean, and here's the part that I, I didn't fully understand then. It was probably around my first year in college. that I went back to my dad and I said, you know, I've been thinking, like, when did I decide that I was going to Howard? Because I don't remember having a first choice of any other school. It was always Howard. So when did that happen? And that My dad said, you know, I remember when we took you there, when your sister, my sister was five years older than me, when your sister was graduating, we took you there and you just locked in. I think you were more convinced about Howard than she was. I said, yeah, okay, okay. So it was there. But But dad, I mean, like this, and I started asking all these very difficult questions and my father is, well, my father was, he passed about a year and a half ago, adept at um, anything, okay? I mean, like this man could argue and debate anyone on any topic from the classics, from Europe to indigenous knowledge in Africa and in the Americas. This dude looked at me, clearly couldn't find his words, was frustrated, And he said, you know, you ask a whole lot of questions. (laughs) And I said, yes, daddy, I always have. And I said, and I'm, and you never answer them. What I came to understand later was that my father was self-educated and he was a little embarrassed about that. He really went through life, making sure that he had what he needed to achieve his goals. And so he taught himself because he was not satisfied with the inferior level of education that was afforded to black children back then, Mm -hmm. coming out of the extreme poverty that he came from. um, It was just absolutely impossible. We're talking about a man who was born in 1925. He died, um, like I said, gosh, it's been two years now. I can't believe it's been two years. Um, A couple days before my son's birthday, in fact, who is named after him. And so they had like a very tight relationship, but they really did usher me into this this sense of rising to the top, no matter where I was. So I don't know that... um, it was as much Howard's influence on me as it was my parents' influence on me. Because when I got there, I got excited about everything. Every first year college student gets excited about freedom to go out and party and do and play. And I did, I had a good time in college, don't sleep. But <laughs> I knew I had to keep that scholarship because what my father and really and my mother too really impressed upon me was, We want the best for you. And we believe Howard is the best for you. My mother was a rattler. Of course, she would have loved me to go to FAMU. But these were HBCU folks. The degree that my father did have was from the ITC, right? The Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta, where he was able to go to Turner Theological Seminary on his own self-education process and his own um, learning from life's wisdom, right? And so those types of barriers that are keeping so many of our young people out today, he was able to move around. And so now as a university professor, I see my job as helping folks to move around those barriers and obstacles that would keep them out because we have to have that kind of approach. I I, I left Howard, I went to TriStar, I started working in the movie business. I wanted to be a movie banker. I was, you know, honestly really inspired by, um, Judith Dash, um, Daughters of the Dust. Uh, Mm -hmm. I saw it um, probably in my first year of college, changed my life. And then I started learning about how the medium of film had been used to basically create public opinion that supported white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I really started learning how the two were working together in tandem, right? So the media industry and the policy industry. And now this, I mean, maybe I'm talking way too much about my 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 dad here, but this really does get to why it's so important, I think, to have that kind of root. My dad used to sit down with me and watch Shirley Temple, Three Stooges, um, all those old black and whites. Yeah. And he would sit there and critique them. And he was my first educator, right? So I didn't go to day, daycare. I didn't go to preschool. My mother worked. My dad educated me at home for the first five years of my life and throughout my, my life in many ways because he was the one that met me after school and walked me to school in the morning and those kinds of things. When kids were bullying me, dad was the one who came and stood at the bus stop with me. Those were the, the, that's the kind of person he was. So when he would sit me down and we watched these old black and whites, and he'd start talking about the racial politics of the day and what it was like for him growing up on those images and understanding that, that the expectations that society had for him as a Black man were so meager and so minor and so beneath him that he just absolutely, I mean, like, I guess like me, was a total rebel he absolutely fought back he fought back when he worked in the mines in central florida and black folks were being mistreated and killed and and all kinds of maiming that was happening with no types of benefits no types of health insurance no types of pension even after they retired but he was working in those horrible horrendous conditions in those phosphate mines that we now know have horrible health impacts on our yeah. folks, right? Yeah. So yeah. all of these kind of systemic lessons, he was weaving into my childhood. Mm. It wasn't something that I learned when I got to Howard. It wasn't something that I learned when later I went to Emory and did my law degree and I did my theology degree. I I had that, I I'd gotten that at home. And so one of the things that worries me most now is what's happening at home with our kids, because I know how hard it is for me to balance trying to be involved in my son's education while I'm also working full time and trying to be caregiver to my mother who's approaching 80, right? So we are looking at a, a, a time in which people are now so sandwiched that I'm not sure that children are getting that type of instruction at home, getting that kind of um instilling of a sense of value and who we are. Uh, I still don't know my, my whole dad, my dad's whole story, mm-hmm. right? I still don't. Um, because I I recognize and and people have told me over the years, they're just things that happened back then that you just don't want to bring up now. You just let it go. Right. So when I watched your film, Mm -hmm. right, when I watched your film, that's when I was over here just in tears because I know, I know in my heart of hearts, in my knowing of all knowings, I know that there's something that happened and I know my father and I knew his temper and I probably inherited a whole lot of it. I I recognize that there were things that were done to our folks Mm -hmm. between 1925 when he was born and 1973 when I was born that, words simply could not explain to me. He did his best by helping me to understand the socioeconomic factors that were involved. But many of us don't know our histories. Most of us are going through this life trying to piece it together because honestly, white supremacy has been so virulent and violent and vicious Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm.
1: that it was necessary for our survival to just not talk about some things. Now, of course, I'm a communication professor, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) Isn't that funny that I would end up being a communication professor trying to unearth some of these truths, some of these messages. And we can talk more about how I do it, but I think it, it's really, it's it comes from who, who I am. It comes from my people. It, it comes from those conversations that we still have when we get together for family reunions and holidays. And you know, this past year was tough because we couldn't get, a, get together for the holidays. I come from a very large extended family. My mother is one of eight surviving siblings and all of their kids and me and my kid and everybody is just, that's, we come together. So this past year we had to come together on Zoom because we could not get together in person, but that proximity, of staying on my whatsapp chat with my cousins and making sure that we're all Facebook friends and making sure that we're all in touch and and we can zoom together for holidays. is important to who I am because, honestly, I see so many of my colleagues who don't have proximity to their their roots yeah yeah and a rootless people is not a people who can thrive a, a rootless people can be taken away by the winds yeah. and the waves right but when we have deep roots and we maintain I think a proximity to those roots we keep relationships with our folks and we tolerate whatever we got to tolerate to do that because we just recognize that we're we're connected. We're interdependent. We're interconnected. I can't be without them. I am because yeah. we are.
0: Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to pass the plate right here, right, right down through here. We're done. There we go. Man, that was, that was, uh, ah uh, so much to unpack. One, one of the things that stood out to me, and I think would we'll transition to this, to the next question I have for you is your father had the, Wherewithal and the foresight to simultaneously lay a foundation for you, knowing that he was uprooting a foundation that had been passed on to him, to our people. So the time that he spent laying that educational foundation, passing it on, being that, that primary educator for you, uh, critiquing film, y- your work today is the fruit of that. Indeed. Of that, those moments. Yes. Yes, you know what I'm saying, um, and Big to your time. to your, your point about the concerns of the youth today, and I don't know, and I I, I do know, I I feel like my generation overall didn't get that. I re, I was thinking back when I was watching those same films, <laughs> Three Stooges. I always watched them by myself or with my cousin. I didn't have anyone analyzing them for me or helping me unpack those things. Right? Um, if, If I if I saw anything, I got it by the grace of God. But I just enjoyed the entertainment, right? And I didn't have that person sitting there helping me to see things that I wouldn't be able to see ordinarily at that age. Um, and I don't I know most families probably didn't. so your your father had the the foresight, the the vision to to lay a new foundation and to plant seeds that uh, are, are still bearing fruit today. So I applaud him for that and no you cannot you can never talk too much about your <laughs> father <laughs> um, But in, in light of everything that's happened um, this past year, all the racial injustice, and, and we know that's not new. We see that year in, year out, um, the unrest, the pandemic, the election, the big lie, the insurrection, all that stuff, it like one after the other. How are you? I wanna make space for that before we move forward. How are you doing? And what have you done for self-care and, and would like to, to do if, if you feel like I haven't done enough, I'm gonna start doing this type of thing, but how are you doing?
1: That's a tough one. I have, I have days when I'm better than others. Um, the honest truth is that most days are good. Most days I'm I'm feeling like um, God is doing something really great and cryptic and mystical, and I'm so glad to be here to see it. There are other days though that I am depressed and I am anxious and I struggle with depression and anxiety. And I talk about it openly because I think we have to beat the stigma um, that is attached to it, especially within the black community. Um, What I have done uh, after years of struggling with anxiety and depression is really make sure that I have the support that I need. Right? So even when I don't feel like it, even when I don't feel like talking, I reach out. I have an amazing support system of friends, uh, male and female, Um, and they stay on top of me. They they make sure I'm good. They reach out to me. They recognize that when I say, hey, feeling kind of heavy, I'm going to need your prayers, that that's not uh, a request for them to start quoting scriptures at me, right? That's not yeah. that I ain't asking. I know the scriptures. Yeah. I yeah. just studied all of them backwards and forwards. I can tell you the history of them and everything else. Please yeah. don't throw scriptures at me right now. Yeah. I am telling you, I need help. I need support. I need presence. Yeah. I need help. <laughs> Some days, you know, yeah. I mean, like there are real tangible ways that we can be God's hands and feet in this world. And I'm grateful every day for the people that God has put in my life and around me to make sure that I continue to remember that tomorrow can be better, right? That, That this is not the end and every day is not like this. And so when I have a bad day, I have to check in with myself. And sometimes I have to check myself. Sometimes I have to literally stand in the mirror and say, this is one day out of how many that have been wonderful. Girl, shut up and sit down, get over it. Let yourself be where you at and you will be okay. And so my gift to myself, honestly, Phil, is that I don't should or shame myself into silence. I do not should or shame myself into silence. The should piece is really important for me because I always am all I'm that person, you know, the the byproduct of all that wonderful stuff I just talked about is that it makes you into somewhat of a perfectionist, right? And you start to I start to feel like any mistake is a failure. That any um shortcoming is going to be exploited by someone. Um, That somehow or another, if I'm not hyper vigilant, someone will take advantage of me and do something wrong to me, harm me in some way. And so I have to always kind of, honestly, embrace that part of myself because that's the part of myself that's been trying to protect myself, right? My whole life, right? I'm not gonna reject her now. She's, she's here this part of myself you know I I, I I prescribe to this idea this this metaphor of the onion that we're all like onions they're layers right mm-hmm. And so my 10 year old self is still a layer inside of my 47 year old self yes. and I have to allow that layer of myself that says protect yourself don't trust people. Uh Uh-uh! Don't go over there. Don't tell them your business. They're going to talk about you. If you tell them you deal with depression and anxiety, they're going to think you crazy. I have to talk to that part of myself because that part of myself is trying to protect me. I have to embrace her. I have to say, yeah, you know, in the past I would have needed you to do this, but I got it now. I think I got it. I think I can see clearly on this one. I think I know what I need and what I need often is just to know that I'm not alone, right? This can be very isolating, COVID, quarantine, stay at home. Some people are not safer at home, you know? And I I have particular concerns about those folks, but I also recognize that, you know what? I needed to learn how to stay home. I Mm. needed me, Roslyn, who likes to fill up her schedule and fill up her calendar and be busy because it makes me feel like I'm accomplishing something and contributing something to the world. It makes me feel good about myself to stay busy. Well, that part of myself has not been attended to a whole lot lately, right? Because I can't just keep busy. I can't run, teach class over here and go speak over there and then preach at this church and then go travel there and come home and take my son jet skiing and do all of that. I can't, I I, I don't have those options and freedoms and latitude like I used to. So now I got to look at that empty calendar sometimes. And I have to be alone with myself sometimes and I have to be still and you know, that's, you know, that Psalm, we always quote about being still and knowing that God is God. Well, that's been a very important lesson for me during this time. So in, in talking about how I'm doing, I, and what I'm doing, I'm building in new stuff. You know, what I realized was, church was starting to produce a lot of angst in me. And there's a reason, there's history there. There's stuff that I have I have unforgiveness around that I need to heal around involving the church. Mm-hmm. But that does not need to stop my growth. That need to stop my relationship with God. That's the church. My relationship with God is something different And my relationship with God has grown immensely because I've had to be still. And I almost want to take that word out, you know, and know that I am God. I really, it's like, I want to take all some of that out and just go. And I want to just say, be still and know that, and and know God, just take the, take the that I Yes. Just it's be still and know God. Just mm-hmm. get be still and know God. And when you be still and know God, you get a chance to be still and know the I am, right? Yes, and the yes, I am,
0: yes,
1: yes. that takes on a whole new thing, right? Yes. So when I say I am Rosalind Satchel, I'm not saying I am just Rosalind Satchel. I am taking on the I am. And I am saying I am resting in something divine and mystical that is operating within me and around me and above me and underneath me. And you can't defeat me because this right here can be any anxiety. This right here can be any depression. And what do I need to do better? I need to get my butt up and out of the house, right? So this is what I need to do better. I need to be active. My life has become hella sedentary. It's not good for me. It's not good for any of us. And if the truth were to be told, most of us are spending a whole lot of time doing this. Yes. Right? We are on the computer, we're on our devices, we're 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 sitting. And I am learning. To stand up, um, I'm learning to to get up, move around again, um, and I'm and I'm learning that that's harder now. I'm learning that that is, um, <laughs> it's much more difficult at this age with these responsibilities and all that's on my plate to find the motivation necessary and and the support system necessary, you know I do well with accountability partners. I used to have a a walking buddy, we would walk this campus and you know three or four times a week it made a big difference in my life, but we've really kind of been keeping our distance because of, of COVID and both of us have just recently gotten our First shot, which is um, good. I'm glad to get the first shot of the vaccine. I'm looking forward to getting the second shot because I just was tired of being afraid. Honestly, I was tired of being afraid to be with my friends. I need that. I need my friends. I need my family. Um, There's something far more medicinal that comes from the togetherness Mm -hmm than anything that they can put in a bottle for me so it's um it's it's been an interesting journey it's it's been i think when you ask when you ask how am i doing it what can i be doing better in terms of self-care i i just there's so many things i could be doing better but i'm really grateful that i've been able to build in things like meditation um yeah. something in my christian experience i didn't get a lot of exposure to and then when i did i got misinformation about what a me- what meditation is yeah. right and so i had to unlearn a lot of the the church doctrine so that i could be open to what god is doing in my life that is so much bigger and broader and inclusive than church doctrine i i'm I'm learning so much now in a deeper way that's transforming my daily practice, not just my Sunday morning at 11 o'clock.
0: Yeah. You you know, well, I'm going to say this, going back to what you shared earlier in the first sermon. um, (laughs) And I say that, that I'm I'm loving this. The first time I heard you share on a panel, I was like, man, I have got to get a conversation with her
1: oh i appreciate that i can listen
0: all day but the only disappointment is that you did not consider the north carolina a.t state university
1: (laughs) but here's the thing though i got mad love for north carolina a.t i do i got i got love love greensboro because i remember do you remember oh gosh one of my first concerts i ever went to was in greensboro um the Budweiser. You remember they used to do Budweiser Superfest? I hate to give them a plug, but remember how they used to come in. They oh my gosh. Aggie fest. No, I thought it was no, 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 no. It okay. but it was oh, it was some maybe it was Aggie Fest. I don't know. There were they used to have these huge um concert festivals. Uh and I don't know, one of them we actually drove down from Howard and and came down. Maybe it was Aggie. Well, Valley. I was I, I was know. there.
0: When you were at Howard, I was there at A T. Well,
1: that means that we were probably at the same party.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. So exactly. we probably that that's funny. So when were you at A T? Ninety one to ninety five. No way. We were I was yeah. at Howard this very same year. Yeah. And I yeah. used to come up.
0: I used to play basketball. We used to beat up on Howard often.
1: You know, but we always had the better <laughs> parties though. <laughs>
0: Always HPC you love. Um, but what you just shared just now, bringing it back a little bit, um, you're not alone. That that you you basically spoke back to me, my my life, my sentiments, the mistrust. Um, that's that's I've come to accept that that's a part of who I've been, and some of that is childhood experiences, some of that is just you know just constant betrayal by by so many people in your life that. Are close to you, and you you come to in an unhealthy way. Learn to not trust, Mm -hmm. and because you got to protect yourself. Um, And in some ways, like you said, that's been for survival, Um, and that's been really the black experience. I I think I think we've we've had to have those guards up to to make it for good or for bad. Um, The the not should or shame myself into silence. That's something I've had to learn as well, especially when it came to that hurt that caused the mistrust, particularly church hurt yeah um I part of the reason why I'm not a pastor is the season has changed for me but another part what kind of led to that and I, I still have the lingering effects of is church hurt and particularly being in a white context mm for seven years, um, and I've been, one of, one of the things that I've been doing to, to help me get through this season, and talking about going back to the silence, not um, silencing myself, is I've been having conversations with my white friends, hard conversations.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the conversation centers around, and, and I realized one, that list is short. Yep. People that I love and trust, and I believe love and trust me, that's a short list in terms of white people. Mm-hmm. And what's been healing for me is, being, is having the conversations with them that not only am I having a difficult time trusting white people in general, I'm having a difficult time liking white people right, right now. I'm, I'm really struggling with that. Um, the, the, the excuses for blatant bigotry, um, the, the rhetoric from politicians from the White House on down, um, uh, the silence of the church, the pushback, um, when, when during the, during the, the protest, the BLM protests, just constant, you know? So that's been actually healing in the last few weeks for me is having those conversations, just letting them know, this is how I feel, right. Um, and not just talk and I wasn't supposed to have that conversation with black folks because most of them already feel the same way I feel anyway. Right. I needed mm-hmm. to have that conversation. With, um, with my white friends. And so I've heard you use the term white supremacy several times in, in, in this conversation already. And I've been shying away or moving away from just talking about racism and really being intentional like others have been, including yourself, about really talking about the root that which undergirds the racism is white supremacy or whiteness. But I think mm-hmm. the heartbeat of whiteness is is white supremacy, the gut, if you will.
1: Absolutely, and I think we've got to be able to have those courageous conversations. Otherwise, they won't be had. Cicely Tyson said something in one of her last interviews that I thought was so compelling. She said, white people have never had to learn us. Mm -hmm. We've always had to learn them. White people have never had to learn us. We've always had to learn them. They always got away with learning the stereotypes and the media representations, all the shorthands that actually work to reify their own preconceived notions, right, that are all based in white supremacy, right? So it comes to um, complete, it, it comes to reason that, you know, if you're in a white supremacist culture, um that when we see representations of things that are negative that they would not be white that that that's natural um you know in a basic kind of philosophical and axiological way right the way we value things um aristotle understood this and this is very well established i i write about it in my book pretty extensively because i want to i want to just number one just point out that my book is a critical race theory book it is a critical race study okay um that means that
0: let me stop you real quick Uh uh-huh give the title of your book and and then go further
1: okay yeah thanks for that um the book is what movies teach about race exceptionalism erasure and entitlement what i did um was i took all the things that I've heard over the years about media content, all the negatives, everything is, whether I was working in Bellagio, Italy, or whether I was working in South Africa or Kenya, I was constantly hearing the same things about the media influence on culture and on values and how American media was corrupting these cultures that we in the Western world would deem so-called third world or developing countries. Because their media systems are often not the priority instead feeding, clothing, housing, the people inhabiting there. Often the media systems are not as developed as the American media system. The American media system developed out of a propaganda project that we have to recognize that that was a really big part of why American media was developed. Um, 1917, D.W. Griffith's movie called The Klansmen, um, that was later retitled so that it would be more acceptable um, as birth of a nation, nation. but it was originally titled the Klansmen* for a reason, right? The DW Griffith saw the influence, the potential influence of this medium to basically move public opinion, change the discourse, change the knowledge, change what is common sense for people, right? At that time, there was this major pushback to reconstruction efforts to make sure that Black folks were seated in Congress. Um, Black folks were vote, well, Black men were voting at that time, um, or at least allowed to legally, but were being often um, pushed out of the voting process. But we're voting enough to get folks in Congress and threaten the powers that be. D.W. Griffith took film as a medium, put Klan ideology in it that would show black people as savages and white people as pure innocent victims of the black savages. That took off and that advanced white supremacy and white supremacist ideology far more than probably anything in the 20th century. We have to look at the fact that these movies that they started doing at the early part of the 20th century were largely white supremacy propaganda. What we've seen, As time has gone on because I got to give the short version right the book the book lays out the whole history of it. Mm -hmm. But the short version is is that we still see it today right, so we still see these representations of black people that are criminalized that are angry barbaric um, not reasonable. um, always shackled in handcuffs, being arrested by the police, that this is all following a very deeply rooted white supremacist ideology that we can trace through the images in these movies. And so in my book, what I do is I, I engage in a sci- a social science study, even though I'm a critical scholar, um, I chose to do a social science study because as a critical race study scholar, I recognized in grad school that my colleagues and professors were automatically looking down on me because I was saying, we cannot understand American history or global history without understanding how race And sexism, racism and sexism have played into those systems. Now, here's where I talk about racism and sexism. Because they're systems. They're systems of reason. They're systems of exclusion. That's when I will will mention it. The ideology that supports it, however, is white supremacy. The white supremacy piece of it is where we have not done the work. Right? So we've got some policy change. We got... Um, const- the constitutionality of white supremacy overturned with brown versus board of education that's really all we did with brown versus board of education we got a ch- we got them to admit that separate does not mean equal and that's all and since then they've been resisting the integration of our schools and so we still see in black communities poor black and brown communities these schools are suffering terribly. A lot of that has to do with the way that the tax structure is set up. And so the property taxes go to the schools where the people earn the most money. The people who earn the most money don't often look like us. We've got to check. It's always an issue of following the money. Mm -hmm. If you follow the money, you will understand how white supremacy works. So what I did with my book was I followed the money. And I know the communication system. I worked at TriStar Pictures straight out of college. I was able to be in the boardroom thanks to some wonderful people at the Black Filmmaker Foundation and Denzel Washington who really opened doors for me when I was young and didn't know anything. Um, But Denzel and Pauletta Washington basically led a campaign at TriStar Pictures to make sure that we were going to have some Black studio executives. Part of that was that they made sure that some Black college students got in. I was the one from Howard, I got in. I was Mark Platt's intern and came back to work my first job there. I was the only Black person in the boardroom making decisions about what what scripts were going to get green lighted, right? Green lighting is just what's gonna get funded. What's gonna get a budget to go into production. I'm the only one, I'm 22, don't have no experience. Mm. Probably ain't had no business being in that boardroom. But I was there and I realized that I didn't have the tools necessary to make the impact that I needed to make to change this system. I learned that the people on the other side of the table, cause I was on the creative end, I learned that the lawyers at the other end of the table had the power. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want that. Mm-hmm. I went back to law school. I actually, God made me do a theology degree as a part of that. That's another story for another <laughs> day. Um, and then, you know, I, I learned from these people that there was all of this stuff that they were learning from the movies about what they should and should not do. And what broke my heart, Phil, was an. um, when I went to South Africa to work during the Mandela elections and we were in Soweto and I was with a delegation of wonderful, brilliant, um, young people from Howard. And we, you know, we saw ourselves as the young intellectuals, right? We were brilliant. Just, I could name the names now and you would know them, most of them. Um, we got, there and we're walking around Soweto and we're compelled and we're feeling like we're on a mission to ensure democracy for our people we're gonna make sure everybody has the right to vote and we thought we were doing something and then we saw these young people starting to run toward us young black south africans in Soweto and they were saying what's up my? what's up man and they kept using this n-word over and over again and it was like a a, it was like a shot to our hearts
0: yeah
1: we were devastated and we had to sit down and have a series of conversations honestly just to unpack that what we found was they learned that from New Jack City. I'm a date myself, right? So New Jack City—that's what they did, and so they were trying to show us affection, brotherhood, sisterhood, calling us by this horrible pejorative that has done nothing but destroy our people. Yeah. I mean, I, it was—it was so we had these extensive conversations, and what I started learning, Phil, was that there's already theory on this stuff collateral instruction theory teaches us and has been on the books teaching us for years that if we export these images and ideologies into other countries, they will teach those people as a collateral instruction guide what we want them to learn. And so in my book, I talk about American exceptionalism, how that is woven into the movies, because we want people to love Raiders of the Lost Ark, even though this is a movie about raping and pillaging cultures and communities all over the globe. But because we've got Indiana Jones and folks rushed out to the movies and we, we support that crap. Right. But that is ultimately how so many of our African artifacts have ended up in European museums across the world. We don't have our wealth. We don't have our 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 even our ancient knowledge has been colonized and pillaged. Taken from our countries and our people, and honestly used by Europeans to increase their wealth. So, when we're talking about reparations, we're talking about something that is not just for Addos. I'm so appalled at this whole so called Addos movement. These people who are trying to say that people of African descent in the United States are only really valuable and worthy of reparation if they are descendants of slaves. Nah, nah, our history didn't start with slavery. Mm. That's some yeah. bull. Yeah. Don't even anybody listening to this, please. These Addos people, I, don't get down with them because one of the things that we misunderstand is Addos as an identifier, completely disregards our African ancestry means as an acronym, American descendants of slaves, not African-American descendants of slaves. American descendants of slaves, it m- immediately drops off our history and our heritage. And it links us to colonization and enslavement as our starting point. And that is not our starting point as a people. Mm-hmm. So for all the things that that go into making my research critical race, um studies and critical race theory it's all about how we cannot deal with psychology archaeology uh epistemology uh philosophy communication studies or any other discipline until we recognize the role of race and racism and even sex and sexism in that history And when we think critically about it, we have to assign dollar signs to to this stuff because we have a people who are not only under supported economically, but that under support economically also disadvantages our schools and our businesses and our communities for all the reasons I've mentioned briefly before and the book definitely goes into more on. But this media system is an important part of it, and we just cannot sit our children in front of these screens and think that they're not going to get co opted by the enemy. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: It's you, I, I, you and I are not the content creators for a lot of the material that our children are consuming and therefore we need to be really cautious. About what they're taking in to their minds and yeah. into their bodies, it's, yeah. it's 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 a it's a it's an important system that we have to understand in order to use it effectively.
0: I want to take your class. <laughs> can I audit your class?
1: Yes, you can. You can. I would love for you to take my class, man. Right. That would help me. That would be wow. wonderful. I would love to have you in there because, see, my classes are all discussion based. I don't like lecturing. Mm-hmm. Lecturing is not how we learn. Lecturing is great when it's some people you know who just like to pontificate, and you know, yeah. I like to go to lectures and listen to people talk. But the truth of the matter is, in my classes, I probably give a fifteen to twenty minute mini lecture at if at all. The rest of the time I'm sitting there going, now I read this here, because they know that everything I I give them to read is not stuff I agree with, right? Okay. So I'm yeah. not trying to indoctrinate my yeah. students. Yeah. I actually give them some stuff in hopes that they will fight back, in hopes that they will challenge it and question it. And so sometimes I'll come, come to class and go, you know, I was reading this and I started thinking, why did I even give y'all this to read? Why y'all think I gave y'all this to read? And the conversation just goes. Just go. I can throw out one question like that, and my classes will take it and run with it, and we will hit all the necessary learning outcomes just because I give them voice. I'm yeah. like, what y'all think? Because this yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. What do you think? And even if it made sense to me, I'm going to start the conversation there so that. I can get those people into the conversation who otherwise wouldn't say anything.
0: Yeah.
1: And by the time we're into it in my ethics classes, oh man. Oh, I love my ethics classes because a lot of times my students come in and they're they're fixed. And they're just, my mama and daddy told me y'all gonna come in here and try to take Jesus away from me. You know, they just kind of locked in. I'm like, well, let's let's unpack that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Up, darling what is it <laughs> what is it that they're worried it's gonna happen let's talk about that and ultimately we get we, we 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 just we get a lot of really fun discussions i i love teaching i love teaching i i walk I away from a lot just to teach I see it.
0: I see it. I see it.
1: it, It's life-giving.
0: So thank you so much. Um, How can people um, follow you on social media? How can they get in touch with you? Well, not necessarily get in touch with you, but how can they definitely follow you?
1: Thank you. Whatmoviesteach.com is the website for the book. There's also a website that I have where we're looking at strengthening church responses or faith community responses to domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Um, that website is in search in search of sanctuary.org or whatmoviesteach.com and then there's always our satchel, rosalindsatchel.com. For more on my speaking engagements and my schedule and my writings and all that good stuff um and on instagram i'm doc razzle dazzle
0: doc razzle dazzle
1: doc razzle dazzle two z's in both
0: got it got it got it once again thank you so much i enjoyed this me Um, too
1: thank you thank you so much i'm so honored to be here and I I'm I'm now you gave you gave me some questions I'm going to have to ponder for a while and think about self-care and how I how I make sure that this is sustainable. Um so thank you for that. You're welcome. I appreciate you.
0: I want to invite you back next week for the second part of this conversation as Dr. Satchel shares a bit about her involvement with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Once again, do not forget to purchase Dr. Satchel's book what movies teach us about race, exceptionalism, erasure, and entitlement, as well as my book, Open Wounds. Both can be purchased on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Thank you for joining me and parking with me at The Intersections.